we uh, live in a world that tells us um, what you do defines who you are. What you do defines who you are, what your job is. Um, you are a, um, a dentist, you are a lawyer, you are a landman, you are a stay-at-home mom. And what you do defines, it determines who you are. But as we talk about this Imago Dei, the image of God that is within us, understand this. It is who you are that determines your identity. Who you are determines what you do. And so I want to start with just a word in just a second. We're going to put it up there. And I just want you, this is your chance to kind of talk out. Hopefully Bert got you laughing and talking a little bit. Um, I want you to respond. The very first thing that pops into your mind when you see this word. Separate God, 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 a lot of gods. How many people just said, me? <laughs> Any? Mike did? Yes. Yeah, that, for some reason, that's one of those things that does not pop into our mind when we think about holy. God told the Israelites that you are to be holy because I am holy. And in Peter, he picks up on this and he encourages these Christians dispersed throughout Rome, suffering persecution, to, to be holy as I am holy. And I don't know about you, but to me that seems like a daunting task. And, and I think part of the reason is because what I think of when I think of holiness when I think of holiness, I think about moral perfection. I, I think about it's something that I need to do, something that I need to become. And so from this point on, I'm going to make the decision that I'm going to be holy. And in my mind, what I think is I'm not going to mess up anymore. I'm going to get all my stuff together and I'm not going to talk a certain way or I'm not going to watch certain movies or I'm not going to eat a certain kind of food for these, for these Israelites. I'm going to do things a specific and certain way that makes me holy. And to me, it is a daunting idea. The idea that I could get my stuff together enough that I could call myself holy. And then I think with that, we grow up with this idea, this mentality that, okay, try, try to be holy. Try to get it together enough that you come to this place that you're almost there. And just the little bit extra that you need, Jesus will take care of. That's what grace is. Be as close to perfect as you can. And then Jesus will get you the rest of the way. And, and somehow we've come up with this idea, this system, where we think it's about what we do that makes us holiness. And in that system, holiness becomes what you do. 
And that creates a problem because for some of you, you grew up in homes where you were told you weren't good enough. Where you were told you didn't matter. Where you were told you were defined by your past and by your mistakes. And to climb out of this hole, to climb out of this hole and to make something of ourselves was something that we felt we could never obtain. Like we could try and try and spin our wheels, but we could never actually get there to that point. So I want to spend just a few minutes looking at the word holiness through Scripture. Um, it's used 403 times in the Old Testament. We will not read every one of them. And it's used 217 times in the New Testament. The very first, I'm going to show you the first four times holiness is used. The, the first time is in Genesis 2, verse 3. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It's not used again until Exodus when Moses is wandering in the wilderness in the desert and then in verse 5 he sees this bush that is on fire that's not burning up and God calls to him through the bush and he says, do not come any closer, God said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. It's used again in Exodus chapter 15 as Moses is singing this song of deliverance. And in this time, Moses refers to the dwelling place of God as something that is holy. And then the other time that I want to look at real quickly is in Exodus 19 verse 6. He says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the first time holy is used in the Old Testament, it's referring to a day. The next time it's used, it's referring to the ground. The next time it's used, it is referring to a dwelling place. And the fourth time that it's used, it's referring to a people, a group, a nation. And then as you get into the New Testament, the word is hagios. And it starts referring throughout the Gospels and through the book of Acts as a spirit that's going to come. And this spirit is going to dwell within you. And this spirit is going to empower you. And this spirit is going to be holy. And then Paul starts writing his letters to these churches throughout this empire. And he starts saying things like he says to the Corinthians, to you, the holy ones. And we translate it in our New Testaments a lot of times as saints, but the actual translation is the holy ones. And it's interesting because he says things to the Corinthian church, um, to you, the holy ones, could you please not sleep with your father's wife? To you, the holy ones, could you please not argue over which preacher is the best? To you, the holy ones, could you please not get drunk during communion? And it's interesting the way that holy 
is used through Scripture. It very much takes on this sense of set apart, which is what holiness actually means. It means the ones who are set apart. Not necessarily the ones that are perfect, but rather the ones who are different from the rest of the world. And creation itself embodies this set-apartness. I think I made that word up. It's okay. (laughs) It embodies this set-apartness. In the beginning, God creates, and there's these four rivers that line the garden, this creation where God dwells. It seems that this creation is set apart from the rest of creation because this is the place that God is. And then man is set apart from all the other creatures. That It's endowed with this image of its creator. And nothing else in creation is given that image. There is this set-apartness to the creation itself. And you have one of the problems. Let me, sorry, just with time, I'm going to skip over this little section. So this spirit, the spirit's something that's producing something within you. Something within you that sets you apart. And Peter writes to this church, these Christians who are dispersed throughout this empire, who are struggling with persecution, who are struggling, and he says to them, but you, you are a chosen people. And I want you to think about this as you're listening to these words. To a people who are consumed with an empire, who are consumed with the the need to conform to what everyone else is doing, you are a chosen people. We don't feel like it. You are a royal priesthood. No, we're we're not. We're, We're outcasts. You are a holy nation, a special, God's special possession. No. If we're special, why is God not taking care of us more? If we're special, why are we going through this? If we're special, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where's our mercy God, where, where, where is mercy? Rome does not show mercy. Our culture does not show mercy. God, where, where are we seeing this? He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. It's interesting that he spends time talking about their identity, about who they are, before he talks about what it is they are to do. That it's not, here's what you do, therefore here is who you are. 
but it instead, it is, here is who you are. So here is what you do. See, and I know in your mind you think it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a difference. It is huge. It is huge. In a world that tells you you're not good enough, that you don't have it all together, God says, no, you are holy. You are set apart. You are endowed from the very beginning, whether you know God or not, with this set-apartness. You are different from everything else in creation. Don't conform to it any longer. You don't have to be like everyone else. And in a world that prides itself in conformity, Peter speaks to these exiles, to these Christians, and he says, live out your set-apartness. You are a holy people. Live like it. See, it's our identity that informs our vocation. It's our identity that determines what we do. I want you to watch this video. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat <laughs> tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, <laughs> he looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more to the wall. Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. with his hat on in the elevator. First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions. <laughs> now we'll see if we can use see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment, on Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. Notice, they take off their hats. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. Sometimes 
it's easier to be like everyone else. Sometimes it's easier to conform. Sometimes it's easier to look around our society and see, no, no, whoever's president, that, that determines my safety and security. Whatever's in my bank account determines my safety and security. Where I live, my house, determines who I am. It's, it's easy times to be like everyone else. Could you see why these exiles, these foreigners, could look and say, you know what? Sometimes it's just easier to be like everyone else. Sin enters the picture in the garden. And I think what sin does masterfully is it leads creation in a direction that it was not intended to go. It's to take the created order and take it a different direction. Words are part of creation. They are given to us that we are able to speak to one another. But you can take that part of creation and use it in a way that was never intended to use it. Sex is a good thing, a God-given gift to experience between a man and a woman in marriage. And you can take that gift and use it in a way that it was not intended to be used. And what you see from the result of sin is creation going in a direction that it was not intended to go. It's almost as if sin wraps its claws around the creation and says, I'm not giving you life back. It's almost as if it was suffocating and draining the life out of creation that it was intended to have. It's set apartness. was consumed to where it would just fit in with everyone else. You and I, it's so easy to allow conformity to be like everyone else, to consume us, to wrap its hands, its claws around us and not let go. And part of the beauty of the cross is what Jesus does is he confronts the result of sin. He surrenders to sin. Not to sin itself, but to the result of sin. He surrenders to it and allows the result of sin to consume him. And he finds himself on the cross and in death. And what we've said before is in death, Jesus reaches into death. He consumes death with himself. He fills death with himself so that in death, all we find is Christ. Peter picks up on this idea 
as he calls this church to be holy and to be set apart. And he says, since you call on the Father, who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. See, sin is the enemy that robs creation of its intended purpose. It takes creation in a direction that it was not intended to go. And it's so easy just to kind of follow that flow and to be consumed and conformed to be like everyone else. And Peter says, no, you were, he uses the word redeemed, but the actual Greek word is ransomed. And to ransom means to pay the price for something that was taken. Typically, we talk about a ransom with a kidnapping. Something was stolen, something was taken, and this is used to buy it back. And so what Jesus does is he confronts the systems of sin that lead to death. He surrenders fully to them. I think to the point where he cannot raise himself from the dead. He enters into death, and that's why it says God raised him. That it wasn't Jesus relying on his own power to raise himself. It was Jesus relying on the power of God at work in his life to raise him up from the dead. See, it's through the cross that Jesus ransoms what sin has stolen. And most basically, it is your identity. It's your identity that sin and death have stolen. It's your identity that sin and death do not want to give back. It is your identity as the holy set-apart ones that sin has taken from you. And Jesus, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, ransoms and buys back what sin has stolen from you. In his most famous novel, Victor Hugo, Les Mis, tells a story of a criminal who is put in prison for stealing a loaf of bread to provide for his family. He escapes from prison, he's on the run, and he finds himself at the home of a priest. And one night, as the priest and everyone else in the house are asleep. The criminal Jean Valjean steals silverware, silver from the priest's home and escapes. This is the next day. Just as the brother and sister were getting up from the table, there was a knock at the door. <clears throat> Come in, said the bishop. The door opened. 
A weird and wild-looking bunch stood on the doorstep, three men holding a fourth by the scruff of the neck. The three men were gendarmes. The other man was Jean Valjean, a sergeant of the gendarmerie, who seemed to be the leader of the group, stood nearest the door. He came in and strode over to the bishop, giving him a military salute. Monsignor, he began. At that, Jean Valjean, who looked glum and broken, lifted his eyes, startled. Monsignor, he murmured. So this isn't the local curé. Quiet, said one of the gendarmes. This is Monsignor, the bishop. But Monsignor Bienvenu had gone over to the men as fast as his old pens would carry him. Ah, there you are, he cried, looking straight at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. But heavens, I gave you the candlesticks too. You know, they are made of silver like the rest, and you can get 200 francs for them easily. Why didn't you take them with the cutlery? Jean Valjean's eyes nearly popped out of his head. He looked at the venerable bishop with an expression no human tongue could convey. Monsignor, said the sergeant, is what this man said true then? We saw him hot-footing it out of town. He looked like he was on the run, so we arrested him to be on the safe side. He had all this silver, and he told you, the bishop broke in with a smile, that it had been given to him by some old codger of a priest whom he spent the night in, whose place he had spent the night in. I can see how it looks. So you brought him back here. There's been a misunderstanding. If that's the case, the sergeant said, can we let him go? You must, said the bishop. The gendarmes released Jean Valjean, who visibly shrank back. Are you really letting me go? He said in a voice that was barely articulate, as muffled as if he were talking in his sleep. Yes, we're letting you go. Something wrong with your ears, said one of the gendarmes. My dear friends, said the bishop, before you go, here are your candlesticks. Take them. He went to the mantelpiece and swept up the two candlesticks and handed them over to Jean Valjean. The two women watched the bishop without a word, without a movement, without a glance that might upset him. Jean Valjean's whole body was shaking. He took the two candlesticks automatically and with stricken, a stricken look on his face, now, said the bishop, go in peace. Speaking of which, when you come back, my friend, there is no need to go through the garden. You can always come and go through the front door on the street. It's only ever on the latch, both night and day. He then turned to the policeman and said, Gentlemen, you may go. The gendarmes headed off. Jean Valjean looked as if though he were about to pass out. The bishop went over to him, and he said to him in a voice just barely above a whisper, don't forget, don't ever forget that you promised to use this silver to make an honest man of yourself. Jean Valjean had no memory of ever having promised a thing and remained stunned. The bishop had emphasized every word he spoke. He went on with a kind of solemnity. Jean Valjean, my brother, 
You no longer belong to evil, but to good. It's your soul that I am buying for you. I am taking it away from black thoughts and from the spirit of perdition. And I am giving it back to God. It's, it's in this moment that you get this clear sense what the priest sees himself doing is not buying his freedom from the police, but buying it back from evil that has entangled and entrapped and consumed the criminal. It's almost as if he is taking him who is consumed and pulling him out of the mess, extricating him from the mess, and setting him apart once again. I'm buying you back. This morning, you need to understand, you are holy. You are set apart. You were from the very beginning set apart and made different. And so it's the question, are you holy or is Jesus making you holy? Yes. Are you holy or is it something you are becoming? Yes. 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 You are holy. Now go and live a life worthy of the holiness that has been given to you. Go and be what God has already declared you are. What if, what if Peter's encouragement for the church is not go and start living your life holy so that you will be seen as holy, but rather a declaration? You are a holy people. You are chosen. You are set apart. So don't conform and be like everyone else. Live out the set, imp- the set apartness that God has given you from the beginning. It is your identity. And your identity determines what you do. Now go and live like it. Father, may we live out our set-apartness. May we live as those who have hope, those who are different, those who have been set free by the blood of Jesus. And we, may we call the rest of creation back to their original purpose that sin has derailed. May we be called back to our purpose that sin has consumed. May we once again be set apart by the blood of Jesus that consumes us, that covers us, that sets us free. That gives us a reason, that gives us a hope, that gives us a purpose for getting up each day. May we, as people who have been set apart, live like it. May we live such good lives among the people surrounding us that they would see our good deeds and glorify you 
Father, may we call creation back to its purpose, to glorify and praise the Father of creation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.